Thank you, Lee. And um, boy, that is a good word. Uh, and before we send our kids off, I just want to highlight a couple of things. I had a dream about organizing a faith community that could feel like a, almost like a Minutemen army, sort of a call to arms. And last week we had an opportunity, Kathy had been involved with Jail to Jobs, and there's a young girl coming out of their program making wonderful strides from incarceration uh, into like stability and a job, and she has a living environment, but she's also pregnant. And so uh, had this opportunity to put together a baby shower for her, which is happening tomorrow morning. It's, it's in Austin, so we've narrowed it down. Yes. And what I love is looking at the back table. Uh, your presence has contributed uh, to the presence. And um, we got a, a, a high chair and a little baby rocker uh, because of our Good Neighbor Fund. And so you showing up makes a difference because we're able to set aside money to just be a part of that, and people showing up with gifts, and, and um, this is someone we'll never probably meet. Uh, this is someone that you've never met, um, and yet people of God respond because there's an opportunity to give not just a hand out, but a hand up. And so I think this is such a super important testimony for the, the church to, to portray. So thanks for leading that, and thanks for um, rallying for that. The other thing I want to highlight is next week we have our first weekend of the month, which will be our second church as tr uh, lab month, and we are gathering together to celebrate year number four. Uh, as we embark on our fourth year of ministry together, uh, we have set aside a room at um, Styles and Switch Barbecue, and I've just been sharing and casting uh, kind of lots of invites out there to just say, hey, do you want to have some great barbecue and hear about the good that's going on in the margins of Austin and help us give away 2,000 bucks? That's a pretty fun invite. I don't want people to think that they're invited to a fundraiser because that's not always real exciting to come to. Uh, but this is a chance just to give away money, kind of like a game show. So uh, I was looking at the registrations. We have about 25 people that have bought tickets, and they all looked really familiar to me. Uh, and we have about space for 75 to 80. I need your help. I need your help in prayer. And I need your help in exercising the discipline of invitation. The reason why we're doing these first weekend laboratory events is so that we can make this place accessible to people who don't have a church home to people who don't have a faith community. We want to create the, the easiest bridge environments so that they can experience just a little of what we're experiencing. Let me give you one example. There was two registrations this week that I didn't recognize. They were the only two on the Eventbrite that I didn't recognize. Laurel had forwarded me an email, and in the email it was um, something confusing from the Wall Street Journal, and she was like, you should read this, and I was like, and I looked at who it was from, and I didn't recognize the name, except that I'd gone on Eventbrite, and it was the same name. I said, did you, did, did you invite a patient of yours? I, I did. did. Did he sign up? He bought two tickets. And I was like, what's his story? Except that he's uh, a, a widow at 70 and trying to maintain his health and fitness, getting a bit of cancer treatment that is non-terminal. Uh, but... He is not a Christian. He doesn't belong to church, not really his thing. Except that he's new in Austin, 
and he wants to be able to join up with people who are doing good in Austin. Well, that's an interesting thing because there's this event coming up. And so right now we have two tickets going to people that are sort of the non-initiated variety. I need your help. This is why we do what we do. So don't just start asking, start praying. Let's, let's max out this place. It's a, it's a wonderful space, but if you would just consider praying, I'm gonna send out an email with specifically how to be praying, how to be talking about it with your kids. We're, we're using our, our, our rhythms of, of generosity and gratitude to celebrate what is um, three year, full years of faith, um, community, and mission in Austin, and so we're looking forward to year four. So, that being said, Laurel, do you have a word for us as we send our kids? And tonight we're talking about how Jesus met Nicodemus and, um, and how he talked to him about being born again. And then our memory verse for this whole unit is going to be found in John chapter 14, verse 6. So the kids are all going to get a chance to memorize that verse. And we'll start saying it together before we're dismissed. So while everybody needs to memorize it, Over the last few weeks, we have had this kind of uh, conversation about, a res in the name of resolutions, we've been talking about resolving to love. And I've never heard anyone actually make a New Year's resolution to love more. So I thought this would be something for us to consider, um, and not just individually, but corporately, because any resolution, any goal setting, I think requires sort of the support structure, the people around us, to set ourselves up for success. Now, part of the consideration is how we might look at what does it mean for us as a church to grow in love? So we've looked at what does it mean if we resolve to love each other? And it was how do we maybe make a vow towards being in community? What should our commitment to one another look like, but what should it produce in us? And through us. And then last week we looked at what does it mean to love others? That is, loving people beyond these walls. And if we made a vow to maybe live on mission, we live on mission as sent ones. That's part of Christian identity. We tend to think as missions, as a missionary or a minister. But in fact, if we proclaim that Jesus Christ is my Lord, my Savior, we're in full time Christian service, regardless of our day job. Today I want to talk about what does it mean for us to love God? So it's love each other, love others, love God. And what if we together outlined a sort of vow to trust God 
by faith. That might be the most difficult one of all. Let's trust God more. How do you measure that? What does that look like? How do you hear from a voice that doesn't always feel clear? How do you see a, a something that doesn't always feel seen? This is what it means, though, what I want to outline for us to love God. And simply, we begin to consider making a vow uh, to live by faith and trust God more. Maybe the best way I can illustrate it is this. Uh, in this day and age, we have a very um, travel-friendly environment. I mean, if you think about 100 years ago, the idea of people jumping on a plane and going across the country um, is unfathomable, but that seems very normal. In fact, some of you might have been on a plane this very week. And if I said, well, where did you go this week? Well, I flew to New York. Um, if I was gonna be antagonistic and trying to illustrate the point, which I'm doing, I'd say, well, actually, you didn't fly. The plane flew. You put your trust in a plane to get you from here to there. What you really put your trust in is the law of thermodynamics. So the idea that this huge thousands of pounds could now be elevated and cruise is, is crazy to think, but we've put our faith and our trust that it'll get us from point A to point B, and it did, and you're here tonight. That's wonderful. But say you enter the plane and you're now at a cruising altitude, and you're like, I've got this flying thing down. I feel pretty confident in it. And you decide to open the door. What ends up happening is the law of gravity takes over, and you're done for, right? Because that's really what's happening. There's the law of gravity, the law of thermodynamics. And it's what we're putting our faith and our hope and our trust in. Maybe the question we're, we're trying to get at or trying to wrestle with is the idea that um, what, is it, what is required for us when we choose to step in, like to enter in? Ah, yes, I have glasses. This just got a whole lot better today. Uh, thank you, Laurel. Uh, and so when we look at what this is, if you decide to step out, or excuse me, I will, um, not everyone on the flight has the same level of faith. People are welcomed on at different points of their confidence and their ability to trust. Have you sat next to white-knuckled passengers before? Uh, and then you sat through and probably might be one of the people that pay no attention to the pre-flight instruction. There's all kinds of people that board a flight. But the question is, is who, who can come into this? Um, how much faith do we need to simply get in? And I would say, enough. All you need is enough. Scripture would say that everyone has a measure of faith. That's what God's given you, and that measure is always enough. And so God invites us to follow him in a life that feels impossible, to live up to this expectation, to live up to this standard, to do this great world-saving mission. We, like, can't do it. He's like, do you got a measure of faith? You can be done. And so I would simply refer to 1 Thessalonians 5.24 when it says, in all of the midst of our fears and our doubts and our insecurities, it says this, faithful is he who called you, he will do it. Whatever sense of mission that you feel like God has invited you into, he invited me to be married to this person and be married for the rest of my life, he's invited you 
into that, and he is with you. He's invited you into this career path. He's invited you into this impossible journey. He's inviting you into this health scare. God is faithful. God is present. We don't always get the results we're looking for or desire, but faithful is he who called you. Super important for us to understand this. Now, if you're also like me and you were raised in the United States, you were raised in a country that had for its sort of foundational, at the founding, a Christian sort of underpinning. The idea that um, we are all sort of have these inalienable rights to be loved by God. And there's something beautiful about that. We've had a strong Christian influence in the founding of our country, but that's not always a great thing because in our capitalistic, consumeristic Western worldview, we also have consumerism. We also have um, entrepreneurialism. We also have independence. We have a culture of pull yourself up by your own bootstraps and make something out of nothing. This is the American dream. And so there's parts of that that are really good and really beautiful. But, and this is where I want to talk, cultural Christianity is doing that part. Because I think at some point we all reach a level and go, hey, there's part of my life that I can't do anymore. And what cultural Christianity is, is when we start to trust God with our lives up until the point that we maybe can't trust him with this part of our life. It's trusting God with a lot of our life, but there's always going to be a part of ours that's hard to turn over. It's hard to surrender. Does that make sense? So it's like saying, I have given my life to Christ. I've given 73% of my life to Christ, except there's this 27% that is yet to be surrendered. And whatever that part is, is the part that God is always inviting us into. What I typically think of this is, this is the area of our own control, our own strength, our desire for self-sufficiency. And so um, I'll, I, as a person, like to maintain control. I like predictable outcomes. I like guarantees for success. And that's not what it means. And so to follow Christ, the part that we keep for ourselves represents the area that I think we're continually going to face crisis in. The part that we keep for ourselves is the area that we're going to continue to struggle with as an insecurity, as a fear. Um, And that's the part, maybe it's a source of conviction, but it's the area that we're going to continue to encounter until we learn to trust God. So God doesn't mean for a lot of stuff to happen, but God allows for conviction and crisis to happen until we can move from a place of self-sufficiency to total dependency. What we're talking about today is how do we love God? And can we, not solo, but together, make a vow to learn to, by faith, trust God more? So as we resolve to love God, what we're saying is, I trust you. The problem is, it's like the one guy who's saying, Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. That prayer resonates deeply with me. And so when I want to trust God more, I need a community of faith to help me take steps of faith. Otherwise, I feel really alone, and and, and that's a terrible place to be. So 
when we say we want to trust him, it, the question is, is how much and, and to what extent? To, uh, how do we trust God when we're waiting? How do we trust God with our reputation? How do we trust God with our estate, with the raising of our kids? Are there areas of your life, because there are in mine, that I am constantly trying to contend with, God, this is yours. Sorry for taking it back. Sorry for not trusting you more. And in a control-oriented world, this is a really point, a great point of contention. Thankfully, Scripture speaks to this, and he speak, Scripture speaks lots of encouragement. If you have your Bibles, I want to encourage you. There's not going to be anything on the screen because I want to work through this whole chapter. But it's Genesis chapter 15, and I'm going to want to inch my way through because this is God's covenant with Abram, soon to become Abraham. Abraham had many sons, Father Abraham, we know this. Um, God meets Abram, and this isn't the first encounter with Abram, but this is sort of a, a reaffirmation. What Abram is struggling with is that he has already said yes to God, he's left his home, and now he sort of is in this trial of trust. Imagine you saying yes to Jesus, getting down the road in your spiritual journey, and wondering if God is going to deliver on God's promises. Does that sound relevant in the slightest bit? This is what Abraham, he has been promised to be a father of many nations. He's been saying, you're going to get the promised land for all of those people. Because what God is trying to do is raise up a people unto himself. A people for a nation need a land. And so they're going to have the promised land. And he's like, go, you're going to be that guy. I know your past childbearing years. I know your wife is barren. Does not matter trust me in these things. And he's like, well, okay. So he starts on this journey. And like all of us, like, it's like Peter stepping out of the boat to walk to Jesus. He actually walked on water. And I think what he did in the middle of the storm is take a few good steps and then start to sink. And he cried out to Jesus. I think this is the same thing that's happening to Abram. He began the journey saying yes to Jesus, thinking, I can trust you. This feels very real in this moment, except that he gets down the road and he's like, are you sure about this? And so there's this sort of reaffirmation of the covenant. So God, in all God's grace, in all God's patience, says, that's fine. Let's talk. So this is where we pick it up in Genesis chapter 15. The word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Do not be afraid. Insert your name there. Don't be afraid. Watch this. I am your shield and your very great reward. I got to tell you, if I have this vision from God in my sleeplessness, in my deep dream, whatever REM state I'm in, if I have God show up in that and go, I am your reward, I'm your shield, that is going to just buoy my confidence. That just feels like a really good quiet time to me. And here's what Abraham gets really real with it. I mean, this is just Abram being like not super spiritual. In fact, he sounds a lot more like me in my insecurities and my uncertainties. Here's what he says. Oh, sovereign Lord, what can you give me since I remain childless and the one who will inherit my estate is Eleazar of Damascus? And he says, you have given me no children, so a servant in my household will be my heir. Apparently, God's promise, God's vision wasn't enough. And like it was in the day of Abraham, 
He had been promised that he would be the father of many nations, and he had amassed this huge estate, and yet his legacy was in the balance, and he goes, I can't have a son. And because of the pecking order, it would have all gone to this teenage boy from Damascus. And there goes his name. There goes all the dignity, all of the sort of things that would prop up his legacy. And so he's like, thanks for the vision, God. Thanks for the encouragement. But I still don't have a son. I, I, I'd like to think that I am a person of larger faith. I'd like to think that I can hold God true at his word. But this feels very real to me. This feels like, yeah, but Lord, you said that a long time ago, but nothing has actually developed since then. It's like being on a road trip with your parents and then, are we there yet? Soon. No, no, no. Can you give me actually minutes? Give me, give me something concrete, right? And, uh, and, and so here's what I love about this, and this is what we can't miss. The secular world tells us, secularism tells us that if anything in your belief system doesn't transpire, if anything in your sort of faith and faith orientation doesn't materialize, it's wrong. Unlike secularism, Christianity gives room for doubt and questioning. Can that be encouraging for the rest of us? So secularism feels very certain, and you can't really argue with the worldview because it's all very scientific and, 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 and black and white, and yet Christianity gives this huge allowance before the face of God to say, I, I, I trust you, Lord, I, I believe, but help my unbelief. Oh man, now we're talking about a living God who's actually personal in nature and is really gracious and patient with us. Listen to what he says. Um, then the word of the Lord came to him. He says, the man, this man will not be your heir, but a son who is your own flesh and blood will be your heir. He took him outside and he says, look up at the sky and count the stars, if indeed you can count them. And then he said to him, so shall your offspring be. Abraham believed the Lord and in credit to him as righteousness. <laughs> you talk about the greatest spiritual pep talk of all time. He's in this desert region, no air pollution. He walks outside of some Bedouin tent in the middle of the desert and he goes, try and even count those stars. You've been out to Big Ben. You've been in, in the hill country. When you get away from the city and you see the lights, try and count them. That's what it's going to be for your descendants. And he's like, really? That's what it's going to be? And it said that he believed him and it was credited to him as righteousness, which gives me lots of encouragement. And so what's fascinating is that he can be noted as this kind of righteous patriarch. Um, and so how can someone um, who feels like they have so much un um, uncertainty about God's care and provision be hailed as righteous? And I would simply say, because righteousness is never something that you and I get to arrive at. Like you just got promoted to fourth grade because you completed third grade. It doesn't work like that. Righteousness is always within reach with every step, with every circumstance, with every sort of moment that we're confronted with, with the ability to not trust God is the same reality that we can walk into God's righteousness and say, God, 
I don't know, but I trust you. Help me to not take control of my own life. This is what he's inviting us into. Abraham had no more of a game plan other than God's reaffirmation of the promise. It's going to be like the stars. He's like, well, if you said so, again, okay, I guess I'll keep going. And then he goes on to describe what it's going to be like. He also said to him, this is verse 7, I am the Lord who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to take possession of it. But Abraham said, Lord, how can I know that I will gain possession of it? And so the Lord said, bring me a heifer, a goat, and a ram, and each, uh, three, each three years old, along with a dove and a young pigeon. Abram brought all three of these, cut them in two, and arranged the halves opposite each other. What is he doing in this picture? This is the picture of covenant. And this is what can't be missed. And so Abraham's asking the question, how will I know? Because what he's saying is, I'm going to make your descendants as numerous as the stars, and oh, they're, they're going to be more than you can fathom, but I'm going to give you a land to occupy. Again, God is trying to set a people apart for himself. And so if God's going to raise up a nation, of which you and I are part of today, he's got to give them a land. That was going to be the promised land. And so he, he renews the covenant. He renews his promise with them with this sort of bloody episode. And he takes this goat and he takes the cap and, and he cuts them in half and he separates them. This is how deals were struck. Because the idea was, um, well, literally, the word covenant means to cut. So he lays out these animals apart from each other, and then when they cut the animals, the, the, the blood is like saying, as we walk through this together, what we're really doing is, it's like, shake on it. Or sign your name. No, we walk in it. May this happen to me if I don't fulfill my promise. That was what was called a parody um, covenant. Except that's not actually what happened. There's a second kind of covenant that's really important called a suzerainty covenant. And what a suzerainty covenant is, is when those pieces are cut in half and only one walks through. One who's a greater to a lesser saying, I got this, it's on me. It's a covenant relationship that says, I will fulfill my promise. You could never do this on your own. This isn't a covenant of mutuality. He's saying, it's on me. And so he presents this and it says in verse 17, when the sun had set and the darkness had fallen, a smoking fire pot and a blazing torch appeared and, and passed between the pieces on that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abraham and said, to your descendants, I will give you this land. And he began to name all the ites, the, the Jebusites and the Hittites and all the ites and saying, it's going to be yours. It's going to be occupied, but trust me, it's going to be yours. But not until 400 years of captivity. Wait a second. You just said it was going to be ours. You just said I was going to have a son. Yeah, you think 25 years is a long time to wait for a son? Try waiting 400 years to enter the land. But God said, I will be faithful. For where God calls, God provides. Do we trust God by faith? Or do we like to be like Abraham and say, hey, this promise is not fast enough in developing. I'll sleep with the maidservant and, and out of my own seed create this sort of 
promise fulfillment. No, please don't. That's a bad thing. There is this, this sense, this relatable sense, when I, when I read this, uh, that I'm like, oh my gosh. And even Abram, Abraham was credited as righteousness. Now, let me just acknowledge an obvious, but maybe not so obvious fact, is eventually, this is what Jesus does for us. He makes this blood covenant and he says, it's on me, I got this. Only I can take the, the sin of the world on me. I can pay your debt for sin. I've got this. It's the same picture of what God's doing with Abraham is what Jesus does for us on the cross. This is a mirror image of each other. From a, from a greater authority to a lesser authority, I've got this. And he walks this blood path and says, it's on me. See, I think there will always be moments in our Christian faith where you're like, hang on, <laughs> I don't think I can do this on my own strength. But the reality is, is we were never called to do this on our own strength and wisdom. And crisis and challenge and insecurity and fear will always be the, reveals the level of human strength and human control. If there's an area that feels particularly tender to you, particularly insecure, particularly perfectionistic or controlling, I would say that might be the area yet surrendered. And God, through his grace, is inviting us to deeper levels of participation. God's not willing bad things to happen. But when we have areas that feel impossible, he's going, I know, I've got this. I've got this. I've got you. He who is faithful will complete it. I'll say this on a personal note, as a pastor, and for a very long time, I had um, a vision for what it means to be in ministry. And I had something spoken over me, you can call it prophetically, from almost 20 years ago, saying, I think you're gonna be a part of creating a future of the church. That doesn't mean that I'm gonna be a household name. But he says, David, the church needs a new expression and you're going to do it. And I, I remember kept asking him, yeah, but do I have to go start my own? I mean, can't I do like a church within a church? Because like I, I was at four large churches trying to do really faithful ministry. And the ministry always involved discipleship. It was always about developmental relationships and helping people understand their calling and, and their identity in Christ. And he's like, yeah, that's not bad. But along the way, what I realized is, while I was doing a lot of good things, I wasn't doing enough of what God was calling me to. And I had to actually get to a point where I gave up doing good things for better things. And one of the things that I was being challenged with was to be able to sacrifice, to give up what was predictable, what felt safe, what felt very known. I mean, when we started Mission Hills, I was two years away from sending my first child to college. We did not have a real college savings account set up. This was, this was a point of anxiety. And the Lord was saying, I've called you out of this land. Are you gonna trust me? So it gets very real when I'm sitting here talking about this journey that God has called us on. And I continually go back to God saying, I don't feel despite all my experience, 
I've got over 20 years worth of training and experience and knowledge and learning and, and school of hard knocks and formal training. I don't feel adequate enough to do what you've called me to do. And he's like, trust me, I've called you. And he who has called is faithful. And you are part of the answer to that prayer and that promise. I just don't think God's done with us yet. But you have your own calling. You have your own divine affirmation that God says, you are my son, you are my daughter, in whom I love and with, him I'm, with whom I am well pleased. And I've invited you to this journey, and it's not always going to be super known, but will you trust me? The hardest times in saying yes to Jesus is when I feel most alone. And the most encouraging time are when people sort of rise up kind of out of nowhere and go, it's almost like a light bulb came on and they're getting it, they're taking initiative, they're being helpful, they're doing it. And I'm like, oh my gosh. I'm, I'm, it's happening, it's happening. And so part of us saying yes to God is also saying no to other good, potentially good things. It's, it's saying yes. And God's, God's plan is always activated by our obedience and I hate that it's that way, right? Like, I wish God would move and then I'll just follow. <laughs> but where's the faith in that, right? Oh yeah, I saw God move, so I'm just like lining up behind him and God's going before me and I'm like, oh shoot. So I've got to step out for God's plan to sort of be activated. What I want to do is invite you to pray. Over the last three, this is the third week, I'm inviting us to consider a vow that we make together. So covenant is what happens between us and before God. And I don't like to talk about membership, but I wanna invite you to consider being in covenant with Mission Hills, formally as a faith family. I've seen membership through the years not produce something. Maybe it produces an entitlement because I've been here, but it seems like a static commitment. I made a once and for all decision and I've been a member of this church for 30 years. I actually like to consider a renewable vow that we revisit every year so that we can, before God and each other, say, this is what it means to be an extended family of faith. And so I talked about what does it mean to have a vow together to be in community. And then we talked about a, a vow to, to, to be live our lives on mission. And so we talked about how we express our gifts of hospitality or uh, you know, our rhythm uh, of compassion. Tonight, I want to consider how we might take a vow where we live by faith and trust God with the details of our life. And so I need help to grow in these areas of love, love with each other, love towards others, and love towards God. You see, it's sort of an inward, outward, upward focus so that we can actually have a three-dimensional living faith. And so the, the rhythms that I've sort of attached with this is our rhythm of renewal. Um, and so I'm just asking the question, how might you practice a growing awareness of God's presence? Do you trust God with your time, with your heart, with your talents, with your gifts? So that what the song says, so that you might tune your heart to sing thy praise. What resensitizes your heart? See, our, 
our rhythm of renewal is supposed to help us have a growing awareness of the presence of God. It's supposed to tenderize our hearts so that we might yield, maybe turn from or turn toward, but we're being sensitive to God's leading in our life. I think it requires us to be in the God's word, to have sort of a focused prayer life. I think it requires us to be in community, to kind of fuel um, these things, to fertilize the soil. The second thing is trust God with our finances. And we talk about our rhythm of generosity. Will we be able to see God as the source of all of our provision? And so I'm inviting you to consider a financial partnership in the vision and values. What was exciting was we finished 2019 uh, ahead. And we had unexpected costs, unbudgeted expenses. We knew that we were going to try and pray and hire someone, but there was a lot of moving expenses, and we still came out ahead. In fact, we finished December $7,000 more because of the faithfulness of people. And while I want to say thanks so much uh, for buying into my vision, I'm really wanting to say thank you so much for responding in obedience and following Christ at Mission Hills Church. Because I don't want it to be about me. I want it to be about you and the Lord Jesus Christ and saying, I want to, by faith, trust you with what you've provided. I think God's at work in small ways, but they're not lost on me. And then the third kind of rhythm that I've attached with this, this, this last part to loving God is, is our rhythm of gratitude. Here's the thing that I want to invite you into. Growing in gratitude is a discipline because the narrative is so accusatory and negative that we need a place to have and to sing and to express God's character and God's nature. So when we prioritize the gathering of saints for worship and teaching, that is giving us sort of fodder to declare God's worth in our life. The journey that God's had us on is to grow in that kind of understanding. As you know God's character and nature, healer, provider, comforter, sustainer, God, I hope that the natural outgrowth is gratitude and enthusiasm and affection for God, even though our lives are still going to be profoundly needy. These are the, the rhythms I've sort of attached to, to, this, um, to this vow. And on February 9th, in two weeks, we're going to have kind of our first covenant Sunday, our I do, so that we would just kind of formalize a lot of what we're already doing. But I want to use this next year, specifically in our tribes, for you to learn the language of rhythms, for you to have a conversation together as you begin to develop maybe not only a memory of what all seven rhythms are, but a natural way of talking about them. And I want to encourage us, to, to, especially on our first weekends, to express these in tangible ways and to make our faith and community more accessible. This is what it means to be a family of faith. And so I want any sort of formal commitment to a body to actually produce something, right? It, I, I want it to feel like a sort of spiritual growth plan. I don't want it to feel like, well, I signed up and it's a country club, so I expect goods and services to come from my church. No, 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 no. I want you to be signing up like it feels like a gym membership, like, <laughs> all right, I'm signing up, let's feel the burn. But at least I won't be alone, right? It requires something 
if I want to grow in love. That's, that's the way. Let's worship together. Um, let's pray as, as, as we kind of center our hearts on this and, and sing and tune thy hearts to sing his praise. Our Father in heaven, um, you have invited us into something that is hard to predict um, and, and impossible to control. And yet you remain in control even when we remain totally out of control. I'm aware that tonight there are things that feel like it's hitting the fan and we feel helpless. Lord, we surrender these areas and say, be the Lord of all. Meet us in a personal way. And Lord, there's areas that we have yet to yield to you. And I pray that you would just speak to us about how you are trustworthy. I pray that there would be a, a, a kinds of confession, a kinds of examination, that you would allow us to be shaped by your promise, your faithfulness, uh, so that we can be faithful as you are faithful. You've invited us into this living faith, and I give you praise for that. I thank you for the saints among us who are taking steps, who are making strides, who are crawling along in some aspects, but we're moving in this direction towards being shaped further into your image. So thank you for the, the good work you've done. It, it's so exciting to celebrate next week together. I pray for the people that are yet to register. I pray for the people that are yet to even be invited. Would you fill that room with the people of peace because you're preparing people in advance for us as you begin to fill our lives with people that you want to have a saving knowledge of you. Will you use us as our instrument, as sent ones? Send us out, Lord, to do your will, to, do, to, to have your way, to have your rule, to have your reign in us. Pray this in the strong name of Jesus.